0: Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is David Fitch. His newest book is The Church of Us Versus Them, Freedom from a Faith that Feeds on Making Enemies. We are living in angry times. No matter where we go, what we watch, or how we communicate, our culture is rife with conflict. Unfortunately, Fitch observes, Christians appear to be caught up in the same animosity as the culture at large. They are perceived as angry, judgmental, and defensive, fighting amongst themselves in various media while the world looks on, why has the church failed to be a people of reconciliation and renewal in the face of such torment? David Fitch tries to give us some answers to that question in this provocative and interesting book. We had a great conversation about it. I give you David Fitch. Dave, welcome back to the podcast, my friend.
1: I mean, how many times have I been on this podcast? I think I should uh, have a uh, subscript uh, descriptor uh, underneath your whatever you do with iTunes or whatever. Yeah. And Dave Fitch should be there besides all the other big names you have on there. Exactly. You're huge. You are huge. Big
0: crowd favorite. And you have a new book, The Church of Us Versus them freedom of of freedom from a faith that feeds on making enemies yes Uh, it's interesting last night i watched a little bit of the democratic debate and pete buttigieg said something really interesting he said that whoever becomes president at the end of this era and this presidency will end one way or another that they're going to have to unite the country that we're going to be deeply polarized even when trump leaves office and i thought it was interesting because you don't really hear people talk like that very often as Actually, a a thing that somebody would have to take stock of is actually not just hey our party won now, but wow, how do we how do we exist in this polarized space and try to not make it mm-hmm. worse? And I mean, that's uh, you, you talk about in the book how we, we absolutely are in a polarized, very adversarial, uh, antagonistic society, and the church oftentimes doesn't make it better.
1: Right. I mean, I'm. I'm looking at culture through the lens now of uh, critique of ideology and the way um, at least Marx and then post-Marxists after World War II started to talk about antagonisms, you know, that whole dialectical materialism thing where society runs on antagonisms. And uh, this I interpret, I use to make a point that apart from God, culture runs on on antagonism it's the way we organize ourselves and in its most ugliest of of ways it has manifested itself in the united states culture it has kind of almost reached its extreme what somebody like slavoj zizek would say is now an eruption of the real you know for slavoj trump is an eruption of the real it's a revealing of who we are and all of our issues but really, this has been going on, I could say forever, but especially the last, since George W. And so, uh, yeah, this is the state of our culture. Now, the question is, will the church be different? Will the church be uh, a place where God can use this space called the church, the ecclesia, to unwind the antagonisms and heal, restore through his presence? That's the question I'm asking in the book, The Church of Us versus Them.
0: You you begin the book talking a little bit about Christendom and Christendom habits and this idea that that you know sometime after Constantine as the Church becomes more and more enfranchised in the West it develops these kind of habits and, and a posture that tends to contribute to some of this us versus them right when when you're when when you're. Not sort of in a dominant cultural position. There's sometimes you don't have to sort of uh, figure out the in versus the out group as as you do when you're the enfranchised religion of the state. You've got to sort of say, well, then who's the disenfranchised one? Right. There's some postures and habits you talk about that actually now as the as church and state have a messier relationship that we still sometimes carry those habits into is in religious institutions and churches we carry that that old christendom mindset right and that
1: that seems to be part of the problem too right well that's kind of what's what's aggravated i call it the habits of of christendom you know uh we're all all of us christians in the united states at least those of us over the age of uh 35 40 I don't know where you're at on that spe- spectrum but uh you look very young by the way you look probably 29 extremely a lot of push i do a lot of pushups, st- lot of push-ups. but uh for for those of us who can remember a time when when kind of white protestantism had this hege- cultural hegemony in the United States and Canada you know we we realized we were, we were we had a lot of habits and when and we're used to being in charge But now we're no longer in charge. And so we revert to either defensive, you know, power defending, defending our power and our posture to exert coercion and power in a culture. Or we're just using an accommodation to the existing wherever we can find power out there. And either one, I say, is a refusal to engage culture for mission, and so yeah, these these bad habits—the the defensiveness, or or the dividing and conquer, and holding onto your turf—these are all leftover habits uh, from when we were used to being in charge. Robert Jones, who's the executive director of PRRI, who does a lot of you know
0: public policy research on faith and value stuff, he wrote a book about the death of of white protestantism in america and he talked about you know how or the dying of it he says you know it's it is awkwardly like giving a eulogy when you give a eulogy there there are obviously some people in the room that have fond memories of the person and and have you know and really miss the person and there are also people there inevitably that have some not so fond memories and have been wounded by the person even as they're you know there with the bereaved it's 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 very christendom's not like that right i mean you have yeah, you have this this reality that you know some people are very sad to see go, and other people remind us that it was it was a hurtful legacy for them. Much like in a, in a funeral where there's kind of mixed feelings over the over the the deceased. Oh, uh,
1: that is absolutely brilliant. That is uh, so right. Uh, uh, the way I I often call it the the grand transition that we're in. And and often I'm teaching students or I'm with pastors that don't know how to live in the transition. Uh, people, you got half the people who want to preserve the past. You got half the people that are angry as all get out over the past. And you're in the middle of this in, intense flurry of antagonism and anger and pain. And uh, I think that describes perfectly what we're up against. And I always go back to saying, we, you know, I was reading the text out of uh, the lectionary last night and leading my class. And, uh, and Jesus is in Matthew 10 is asking us to be wise as serpents, but gentle as doves. And this is the kind of leadership we need in this, transitional period, you cannot enforce a new Christendom. You can't, you must cultivate something new out of this. And I always say for people who are in love with Christendom and the older they get, the harder it is to change. I say, pastors, please just kind of, kind of don't change my mom who still loves the revivalist uh, pianist that goes up and down the keys, you know, that sounds so out of it. Let her enjoy the revivalist pianist and let the rest of us now engage and and, and lead this new thing. These are the kind of tactical uh, things we have to think about as we lead the church out of this antagonistic mess to being the presence of Christ in this world.
0: Do, do you think that the, the election of Donald Trump has almost given people a kind of – the people that want to preserve a kind of Christendom legacy, a legacy where – america is you know in the mythic imagination this kind of christian nation Mm -hmm. i wonder if it's is donald trump kind of a final rallying cry because he kind of i mean he for conservative christians it seems that he's the kind of guy that some of the 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 enthusiasm seems to be because you know the culture left does probably have a lot more influence in media and and higher educational institutions and he kind of is antagonistic against those things, and it's kind of like you know, it's kind of like somebody that you wish you could bring with you to Thanksgiving that can argue <laughs> your your brother-in-law, or your or your father, you know, your father-in-law. You can never get a word in edgewise. He kind of acts like that sort of. Hey, he's our tra- he's our champion. He's the people's tribune.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, I've read a, a lot of of political theories around the way revolutions start and the way hegemonists frames get blown up and you know one of my favorites is uh the way zizek talks about the eruption he only talks about it three or four times the eruption of the real but the way badu uh calls it a truth event you know uh it's it's this this crack in the ideology and uh out of this erupts all this emotion and anger and um um Everything flows to this one space and it kind of reveals the lack in the ideology. And, and that's what Donald Trump has done. And, um, now the question is, will the church respond? Now, I, obviously, I don't, you know, you and I probably think alike on this. The church has not responded very well, uh, to, uh, the eruption of the real. Um, in fact, uh, a lot of the, certain white evangelical church. I don't want to stigmatize all evangelicals. You know, that's a problematic as well. But, but that, that sector of white evangelicalism, maybe in the South that all line up behind Donald Trump, uh, to kind of preserve the past and the power and the hegemony that they were so used to and they loved and they thrived in. Uh, that's, that's a failure. That's an abject failure, right? And, and so now my, my book, Us versus Them is asking, how can we, uh, be the space where, where really Jesus through his presence by his reign as, as Lord creates something new? creates a place of healing restoration reconciliation and the restoration of all things as a what do you eschatologically we call that a prolepsis of what he's where he's taking the whole world so i think that's that's the opportunity that is represented by donald trump
0: you talk about in the book how there, things act as banners and how it, i often think in religious institutions They'll ask you in a job interview, like, well, what are your thoughts on the authority of the Bible? Really, what they're asking is, what do you believe on ordination of women or how old the earth is or same sex relations? But it's sort of like, well, what do you think about the Bible? Because the idea is that really means, who are you, are you against the people we're against, right? Or, or what do you believe about the end times? When well, it's really not so much about the hope for the world, it's about, well, are you against the people we're against on the end times, right? And you, you, you talk about it, you have this great analogy of, how caffeine-free Coke became this widely, uh, Ziz- you're using Zizek here. It becomes this widely popular drink, even though it doesn't have anything the original Coke had. You take <laughs> out the, take out all the principles. It's not. It's not. You don't even get the caffeine high. But it's just sort of this watered-down thing. But it's. But everybody drinks it. And, and you talk about how a lot of these evangelical sacred cows, these doctrines, really. Are just kind of banners d- defined largely by what by, by who you're against, right. right? That's how you really know what you believe. That we we, we believe not like those people.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I I kind of uh, work off of this uh, political theory uh, based on ideology that um, defines well well for Zizek and for a lot of those post Marxist ideolo- ideologists. Forgive me. I don't want to bore your listeners, but there's a, there's an emptiness to it. There's an emptiness to the way the politics is formed, and so we organize ourselves by what we are against, and we choose these banners, what uh, Mouf and leclau call master signifiers or empty signifiers. They they gather us around. Uh, being against something, but they really don't mean anything because they got extracted out of everyday life, and I and I view evangelicalism as that as very much in that camp, you know, inerrancy or, or uh, the decision for Christ or or the in and especially the Christian nation. These things, if you try to pin people, by the way, you you use Kathy Lee Gifford as your analogy of the decision. (laughs) It's very interesting. So
0: I'm thinking, wow. I mean, she's uh. Yeah, now she, she well, she doesn't have that show anymore with Hoda, where she drinks the wine, or does she? They used to drink wine in the air. i I always they drink wine at ten a.m. on the show, and I'm thinking, what is Billy really going that on with that? Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying I'm against it. I'm just saying it's very uh, not very evangelical decisional. Well, well it, it before noon,
1: that's not good. Uh, that's not yeah, good it, for anybody, frankly, but no, uh, no. especially evangelicals. But yeah, th- so so we became a politic that if you took away our enemies, we, there's nothing there. That's an empty politic, and I contrast that with what I call the politic of fullness or uh, the presence of Christ and the the temple analogy and how God wants to work in the world through the manifest presence of himself among a people, which shows kind of a light to the rest of the world where we're all heading. We just don't know it yet. And um, so for me, this uh, getting out of this antagonistic thing uh, is so important for us to get back to being Jesus and the presence of Jesus as a body in the world to witness for what for what God is doing in the world. There are some guys have had on the podcast to do this podcast called Why
0: Theory and they were talking about how sort of the the politics of immigration. And they're saying that, you know, the Kantian way, the great German philosopher to attack this rhetoric as well. well. On one hand, the immigrant is Speedy Gonzalez trope, right? He's running around taking all our jobs. On the other hand, he's shiftless and lazy and a bad for. He says, "Well, the, the contempt say, well, those both can't be true." They, they said the Hegel way would be, yeah, the immigrant is industrious and lazy, just like everybody's industrious and lazy. It says that basically that the people we don't allow to be complex are the are the are the objects, the enemies, right? It's, it's 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 like feminists say the Madonna whore complex. They can't be both a mother and be sexual. It's all, you know, that, that, that whenever someone, it doesn't get to be, have the complex range of human reality, they're probably the other, right? If 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 we don't let them be messy, like we're all messy.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I do love that. I, I, I think that's, again, that's genius. Uh, like when evangelicals do something, it's
0: understandable. But when the left does it, it's it's demonic, whoever it is, right? Right. Left, leftists do whatever. But whenever we pick somebody that can't be... As complex as the human story, they're the other, right? They're the they're they're they're, they're, they're the, the
1: extracted caricature that we turn into an object uh, as an enemy. By the way, uh, Zizek uses the Jew. In the German Nazi ideological edifice to illustrate how we always need this objet petit, this thing that's that we can't be that we want to blame uh, this, this object for everything that we can't be. And um, that's that's a perfect example of it. And so I fear I talk about it in the book. Uh, us versus, uh, the Church of Us versus them. I talk about how we have created objects for evangelicals. And obviously, one of them is, uh, the gay or lesbian, uh, kind of, uh, object petite. Uh, oh, we can blame everything that's gone wrong with our own sexual ethic or, uh, our problematics in, in our marriages on this. And we don't ever have to deal with the real issues on the ground in our sexuality. And, and and I point out over and over again, this is what keeps us from God working through Christ among us to heal our sexuality is we make these objects which gloss over everything and just get us caught up in us versus them antagonisms. And folks, if you're listening out there, God wants to open conversations. I say we need... In evangelicalism to look at our own construal of heterosexuality and all the multiple ways it's screwed up and turned into this ideology that doesn't work for so many people but we'll never talk about it we can avoid talking about it nobody wants to talk about sex and we'll make an object out of this person or this these people and and never have to touch what's actually going on on the ground that is the way ideology works it's an antagonism. It's the work of the enemy. It's the powers, the principalities. It's what keeps us from being the people of God in the world.
0: And what's more evangelical and same-sex marriage? If you're an evangelical, you're supposed to have the same sex for the rest of your life with the same person. It's all same-sex marriage. <laughs> that's, that's really how it's supposed to be, right? I mean, yeah, it must be. Uh, yeah. Dude, I but need to take inter- notes
1: on some of these one-liners you're
0: coming up with. Hey, right that's now. it. That's, that's the whole thing, man. That's all I got. Uh, I, I mentioned you talk about this politics of fullness. This, this, uh you know, I, I'm I'm influenced by again people that are interested in Hegel right now, and, and how Hegel says the truth is in the whole. And when there's contradictions and tensions, you, you you don't need to see it as an antagonism, right? Just like Christ is fully human, fully divine. Like these, God is one in three. There's all these, you know. So necessarily, the tensions might not be. uh something you need to antagonize but actually you could both be on to some of the truth in 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 the tensions but i feel like it's almost like our impatience leads us to turn tensions into antagonisms right we don't like the tension i mean uh chesterton says something like the pre-modern man would have rather had two truths in tension than a half truth but you know the modern we usually settle for the half truth the antagonistic one always is almost like looking for the half truth right to club the other person with
1: yeah um I'm just sitting here listening to you talk about Hegel, and um, I realize a a lot of what I do plays off of, I mean, unintentionally or indirectly. I mean, of course, Zizek was a post-Hegelian, and a lot of these uh, post-Marxists are, of course, indebted to Hegel. uh, But I've never read Hegel as closely as, say, someone like Holesklaw has or you – and but, I do see this tension as absolutely uh, can we find another word for tension I wonder but um because I see what happens in matthew eighteen fifteen through twenty as overcoming antagonism. I see that instead of making an object an enemy uh, to distance myself from the other to create this antagonism, Jesus says, "Go directly to the person." Face to face encounter, see if they will listen. And it's almost the overcoming of it. There's no, uh, winner take all position in, in the Matthew 18 passage. Whereas antagonism wants to keep us in the same, uh, can I say ideological frame? And, and it's, there's either going to be a winner or a loser here. Jesus says, when two or three come, in my name and and we're gathered under his lordship what is bound on earth shall be bound in heaven what is loosed in earth shall be loosed in heaven in other words it completely goes beyond the frame something new is birthed for the kingdom i don't know if that's hegel's alfheben or not but there's something to this dynamic that you're talking about that is all made possible by the presence of Christ and what He wants to do in and through conflictual dynamics that are just part of everyday life.
0: Yeah, a, you have this chapter on the Bible and the biblical drama. and You have this great section where you say a good story doesn't need defending. I, I found that really compelling because a good story doesn't need defended, right? I mean, it, it, whether it's a great novel or a great p- film or serial drama, it doesn't. You know, the the, the real artistic ones speak for themselves and. And you kind of argue that, that oftentimes we kind of reduce the Bible to slogans or banners, and then that has to be defended, right? Because it's by nature they're framed over against this or that. Yeah. So you're, but but you talk about the drama of it and and all these different lenses on the story and 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 the different errors of the people of God and the different. Lenses on the way Christ works to heal and redeem people, and that we don't need to sort of sloganize or choose one versus the other. In fact, the the the, the wider frame, like you're saying, we, that really brings the Bible into a story we we can participate in, rather than use it as a banner to like march against somebody with.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so often the Bible becomes this blunt instrument to win wars, and I, I just don't believe, uh I was going to say Jesus ever intended the Bible to be that way, but I don't know if that's possible to say <laughs> correctly <laughs> theologically, but I, I I just don't believe that's why we're given the Bible. Um, we are given the Bible to unfold the reality of God and this world as it is under Jesus, his Lord and call people into it. It's an invitation. And yeah, uh, you not only cannot defend a good story, um, You know, uh, there's no way, uh, to, uh, tell even if there's a winner. There's just not a winner in telling a good story. All people win. By hearing a good story, and so um I just think that uh the Bible is that kind of dynamic doesn't mean we don't need to understand what it says doesn't mean that people like Scott McKnight don 't need to do good work on a exegesis, help us understand the the words because it is was written in a two thousand years ago language but let's not miss the narrative this is This is yours and my friend Hans Fry, Yale theologian how the narrative of Scripture got eclipsed by the historical critics and how we need to return to understanding this is the story of our lives this helps us see i'm trying to help my 14-year-old son understand why we read the bible we don't read it to like you know somehow compete with some version of seven-day creation or whatever we read it to understand ourselves in a story and who god is so we can recognize him and live into it i want to take a
0: brief moment to ask you a quick question do you like this podcast do you enjoy it do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning afternoon or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic do you tune into it to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the Thank You Roll Call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan Demice, Samantha Conauer, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlan, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stahlsworth, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintkeneig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Isn't, though, the gravitational pull for a lot of your readers, though, I think, and a lot of people in, I mean, you represent a sort of distinctive minority voice in evangelicalism right now, right? Uh, It's not not a tiny minority, but still, if you look at the people that are in all these conservative institutions, you know, again, largely supporting, you know, Donald Trump and other things like this. Isn't the gravitational pull, though, so many of the kind of progressive evangelicals, more open-minded ones, I see oftentimes do read the Bible as as the as the counter to the 7-day creationist or to the John Piper you know or whoever i mean it, it, it's hard right the gravitational pull is always to some kind of antagonism right and and this is the problem you you, you kind of uh you you could become sucked into the antagonism against the antagonism
1: i uh, i think you're so right i mean um Uh, I always tell us we have to be patient in, in, in the way evangelical fundamentalists of the millennial and younger generations are rejecting, angry, running away from this kind of abusive, coercive fundamentalism that was trying to defend itself against the culture and really couldn't measure up in terms of discipling people capable of living outside of the four walls of church on Sunday morning. And they're mad as heck. And so they go to the other extreme of, say, a progressive kind of Protestantism. Um, but it plays within the same frame. So instead of arguing against same sex sexuality, um, using the Bible, we're arguing for it using the Bible. And, and we, we, we don't get that the Bible's actually trying to do something. We want to examine the whole framework. It's like I'm always saying, you know, uh, can we not James Dobsonize the whole same sex sexuality problems? <laughs> because actually, he's the one, if, if not the one, he is someone who created the whole mess in the first place, thinking that we have to romanticize and attractionalize and sexualize everything, and the family has to be the idol for all of us to achieve. And, and my goodness, you know, uh, so, so, so when we do that to everything, um, it creates a mess. Can we please get out of the frame so that we can look at what God wants us to do and be in terms of sexual human beings, uh, outside of the trappings of this, this framework, this ideological framework that evangelicals created? Um, and so anyways, I'm always saying, We uh, from from evangelical fundamentalism to kind of progressive evangelicalism, they're caught in the same frames and they're not helping us engage the world for what he wants to do to transform and renew and bring his lordship and justice to the world. And so, yes, uh, we have to get out of it. Uh, and the Bible, we need to see not as a proof texting kind of propositionalism that's going, if we can just get it right, we're going to solve the problems of the world. It is a grand drama we're being invited into. Um, and, and that's, that's I think, another way of, that's just getting us out of this whole frame.
0: Yeah, you know, I, was, I, I was at a conference once and I saw a book table and there was some book, you know, an introduction or a, 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 some kind of guide to church history, right? And I thought the only person's going to pick this up on this table is somebody that's really into church history who doesn't really need the book. Like, do you think like the struggle of writing a book like this is oftentimes the people that are caught in the antagonistic frame most deeply? They're probably not going to pick the book up. I mean, is that right? It's oftentimes people that already have a sense for the problem that are probably sympathetic to the book, right? But I mean, who would you? Like who would you fantasize would read this book if you're like, gosh, if I could just give this prominent Christian leader who would have who if they could just get a little bit of this, they would like who would it be?
1: Well, okay, first of all, yeah, there are Jerry Falwell Jr. well, who knows who knows who who will read this book? But, um, I think there's a whole McKnight. Will McKnight read? He it? already read it and he loved it. Oh, nice. There okay, but uh, I, I I would say this. Um. There are a whole group of people who are realizing the bankruptcy, the emptiness of church in this culture. <clears throat> and uh, excuse my raspy throat. And uh, uh, there are a whole bunch of people who don't know what to do with this this cultural engagement problem we have. So not everybody, especially the 37 percent who are going to vote for Trump if he kill, shoots somebody on Fifth Avenue and kills him. They're not probably going to read it, but there's a whole bunch of people that are going, please, please. I mean, I, I don't know. There's huge amounts of people. It's not as grim as you might think that want to figure out a way out of this mess. And pastors need— That should have been your subtitle for the book. It's not as grim as you might think. <laughs> Actually, sometimes I wonder if I can even say that because—
0: Zizek says, the light at the end of the tunnel, it's probably a train coming to run us <laughs> over. The other thing that he said to uh, uh, Jordan Peterson in the debate that was great, he's like, you are so optimistic. I think of human beings more like a. we have parable of a Slovenian man, peasant farmer, godlike creature comes down and says to him, I'll give you anything except your neighbor has to get twice as much. And peasant says, Okay, take out one of my eyes. (laughs) Dude, your Slovenian accent is stunning. I mean, I like Zizek. I think he's he's very interesting. It's funny in that Jordan Peterson debate, I thought that Zizek had a much deeper understanding of what I find compelling about the Christian theological imagination. He said some things, and Peterson like was like a deer in the headlights. And I'm like, this is the guy, Peterson, who's kind of allegedly the defender of these traditional Judeo-Christian values and stuff, and he said, he seemed tone deaf to the kind of biblical drama you were talking about and Žižek is quoting Chesterton and Kierkegaard and kind of he kind of gets it like he 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 which is an interesting kind of dynamic yeah
1: yeah yeah well <clears throat> so two things first of all Žižek is an atheist uh but he probably understands uh so much more about the story and and the uh the, the the political ramifications of Jesus Christ in the world than does most evangelicals. The other thing is evangelicals when faced with serious questions, especially the kind of cultural questions that Zizek kind of challenges them on, will will be will will prove, I think, and I'm not being pessimistic, empty because of everything we've talked about in this podcast. So none of that surprises me. It's kinda of like a metaphor for what we're facing uh these days.
0: And you, I mean, it's interesting because you tell a story in the book that I was incredibly moved by. You talked about going into a church in nine eleven, and after nine eleven, and and the American flag was draped over the community, mm-hmm. right? And you took it off, yeah. And you said to this congregation that our president has said we want Bin Laden dead or alive. I, I say we want him alive and saved. I mean, that's very interesting. I mean, I I I, I thought, wow, that. I think that a lot of people might have had the discomfort you felt. I think few people would have taken it that far. I mean, could you talk about how people reacted when
1: you did that? Well, first of all, I was in the middle of, I was at the very beginning of a church plant, which which was, which was became Life on the Vine Church in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. And, uh, um, you know, and at this point in my life, I wanted to shape a church's imagination for what God wants to do in the world. So all of that was instinctual. And by the way, those weren't my words. Those were E.V. Hill's words on TBN. <laughs> okay, so, so he was saying something to an audience that was much more hostile to that message on T, uh, TBN's audience than... than so you, were, you were quoting I was him, quoting you know, E.V. Hill. Uh, and uh, I can... Cons- it, it
0: was a prominent evangelical... He's an African American, African American evangelical
1: pastor, pastor who had a regular spot on TBN. This is back 2015, 20, 20 years ago. When are you going to get a regular spot on TBN? I'm not going to. I'm I'm so content and happy to be on podcasts with Scott Jones that that I'd I consider love, the. I'd love to see you in one of those golden chairs. That's I, I consider Scott Jones' podcast to be the ultimate in achievement in broadcasting. You got to get out more. You gotta get out. More. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, all I can say is, um, that that really broke open some space for God to think about who we are. Like, I think everyone wanted to hate the Muslim immigrant back then in those first few days after 9 11. And this gave us an opportunity to see what God's called us into, uh, to minister, uh, to all people and invite them into the grand story. Yeah. I think that's, uh, uh, that that was, by the way, I learned all this from from Stanley Hauerwas, uh back then, and I've since branched out a little bit more. But uh, I think all that stuff is all that's very very important to me.
0: Yeah, and one of the things you also echo Hauerwas in this book. You talk about the church is political, but not in the sense of the way we often think now. Uh, of yeah, it's funny, I, I have a, a a guy I know in England who is an evangelical Anglican. He says my church is equal Tory labor and, and liberal democracy. It's like it, evangelical, it just doesn't track the same way. Like you wouldn't think of it as it is today if you're an evangelical, you know, you're overwhelmingly and have a certain kind of politics. But you talk about a, a politics in a more radical sense, right? That that when you create a community where people feel the presence of Christ and get out of these antagonistic frames and really get to live in the in the drama of the Bible and the presence of Christ together, that, that, that options are come about for living for doing life together that that's the real politics right that this is when you're creating a community that can that can kind of live challenge those antagonistic frames and really live in this politics of presence and fullness. that's the that's what you think is like the real right politics, right i right? think i say
1: the local church is my politics everything else is derivative thereof <clears throat> and so uh you know, the uh, the word ecclesia that the Apostle Paul used to describe the church is really a, a general assembly, it actually uh is what the Septuagint used to translate uh uh the the nation of Israel, uh ecclesia, a politics, a local assembly, making political decisions for the broader town and the village. And and yet, of course, uh the local church is that ecclesia, but we are we are uh, discerning the politics of jesus we're discerning what jesus is doing and how to participate and cooperate and make manifest what he's doing and not everybody in westmont illinois where i live is going to see it or cooperate with it or even understand it that's to be accepted in a post christendom world and yet we are to live it ahead of the rest of the world and give witness to it so the local church is politics. And once we start engaging the issues of racism, sexuality, immigration, socioeconomic politics, inequities, tax codes, health insurance, health, etc., in Westmont, Illinois, we can take it then to Chicago, and then we can take it to Illinois. Who knows? It might even impact Washington, D.C., but we have the manifestation of what God is doing to point to the The very heart of what it means to be a witness is to have something to say, aha, do you see what I'm talking about? It's visibly being manifest here. This is Jesus. And we can take that to the wider uh, places. And I always call that the uh, first then approach to national politics. First local. First, working it out on the ground, uh, first working out all the disagreements, antagonisms, and everything, and then taking it to larger spheres by the way that 's what happened in Canada uh, with health insurance. It started out with this Baptist pastor Tommy Douglas in uh, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, I believe it was Saskatoon. some town city in Saskatchewan became the policy of the province of Saskatchewan, and now it's national it wouldn't It couldn't have happened the opposite way you couldn't have gotten uh 52 uh, parliamentarian uh governors of the provinces to g- all agree on one thing and and make it come out I, i'm i'm using mixed political terminology here all the canadian people who are listening are going yeah he doesn't know what he's talking about with canadian politics but anyways uh you know what i'm saskatchewan saying saskatchewan is lovely this time of year that's what I'm saskatchewan actually north dakota just south of saskatchewan is is under 40 inches of snow right now. Do you know, I have, I have a friend from Canada
0: who just, he actually, he and I actually do a podcast together called the Alice project. He lives in London. He's a political scientist, but he just, he, gave lives, the Alex Tre- he lives in London now, London, England, um, but he grew up in Canada, but he just gave every year, Alex Trebek, and the Alex Trebek lecture. And my friend gave it and he sent me a picture with Alex Trebek. So that's very,
1: awesome. I, very that moving. is so I like cool. Alex Trebek, Alex Trebek lecture. That is the you know the thing about
0: I like about Jeopardy. If you bomb Jeopardy, you don't live forever on YouTube, right? Because it's a hard game. But if you bomb Wheel of Fortune, you live for like when 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 everybody knows the puzzle and you don't know it. That lives on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, you know? like it's just different. Jeopardy's it's less antagonistic. I I got a book recently uh, from the uh, from an uh, from a publishing house you've published with, not with not the one you wrote this book with, but another. Publishing house, and it was a prominent guy writing about uh, Richard Dawkins and C.S. Lewis, and comparing their intellectual, you know, kind of lives and temperaments. and It's very, it's a very interesting book, and I, I thought, but th- that's interesting. I mean, the, a lot of people struggle to make sense of Christianity intellectually, like that that that. Hey, how do we live in a world where? There's stories of modern science and and, and pluralistic stories in philosophy and and history of religions and things that seem to higher critical stories about the history of the Bible and stuff that seem to make religious faith harder to hold on to. You don't spend a lot of time talking about that stuff, I mean, I mean do you? I mean, do you see that in your students? or I wonder how do you think about questions that, or do you think most of them are more political than intellectual? That, that if you get because I, I mean i I do meet people that have these kind of intellectual struggles, yeah I mean I wonder how like how can I ask a
1: question stuff? where where what's their background in terms of church do they do they come from church or do they have they never darkened the door of a church?
0: I have friends who uh, who are who I can think of who are drawn to religion and have not been church people who people who have struggled with these kinds of questions who were deeply religious. Right, largely evangelical, and then people I can think of that grew up kind of in more nominal church experience, but are but have become, but are people that care about spirituality and values, and, and sometimes want to talk about Christianity. Is you know they're curious about. It. Like I, I can think of people that I have conversations with in all of those camps.
1: Yeah. Uh, okay. So I, my my first impression is uh, that the people who struggle the hardest with questions of science or let's say essentialism when it comes to sexuality or gender or um who struggle with uh should should we have one version of democracy or not these these fundamental questions they come from church and and i consider them deeply ensconced habits of modernity I I know these words are not in fashion anymore, but they're just the way we think and learn to think about science, history, um epistemology, etc. I I am so comforted to be freed from all that uh when I engaged a world that is no longer culture big C singular, it's culture's little C plural fractured cultures. So I'm I'm much more of a post structuralist. So we come to this looking for a compelling story, a compelling reality, a way of understanding and thinking through and living life and Jesus proves to be compelling. And I don't those all those other questions I see as hangovers from evangelicalism and or Protestant liberalism Uh, you know, for the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, those were the questions, maybe even the 60s, but the 90s and 2000s, uh, the, most of the people who never went to church don't approach it the same way. And so I feel like a lot of these questions, the Richard Dawkins of the world, uh, who are challenged, come from that prior place. What do you think? See, yeah,
0: I mean, it could be true. So you think that sometimes the, that the, the way we're moving forward when when there's less of a struggle for the big c culture that there's less high stakes hot button issues that that you can come to things yeah. a little more open-handed or oh, the intellectual that, habits
1: are just different and 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 the previous intellectual habits i'm i'm afraid they just uh i'm always trying to talk people who went to Wheaton College or went to some Bible college or went to some Christian liberal arts college that still teaches like worldview education and all this other stuff. Uh, uh, I'm always trying to convince people to leave those intellectual habits behind. By the way, this is something Wash did for me is leave foundationalism behind and understand the narrative nature of the way things work and all that stuff. So I'm always trying to get people to leave those habits behind. I can't help you, but if you want help and you want to argue with your way through one position or another, we'll go to the creation science museum or bio logos or something. And say, sp- they have great museums. There's creation people to. That <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, you don't
0: make a, you don't make an anti antagonist theme park. <laughs> That's the problem. You know, you got to get a better theme park to get some more books.
1: Uh, really?
0: I mean, this is, people go to those things. Oh, I, I I'd go to that. I would go to that museum even though I don't think it's like intellectually like
1: I have been to the museum. I, I still think it would be I think it'd be fun. I've been to the museum. I'm fine. What did you think? Uh, is it like The Flintstones? He, here's what. here's the here's the same thing I'm trying to say is, you know. Um oh, Did you meet Ken Ham when you went I there? I did not. I don't I believe I would love it. to see you interact with
0: him. Why? I just so they, I I love that part in in Bill Maher's Religious where he says, you know, God's word is higher than I would. Are you God? And Bill Maher goes... You're talking yeah. Bill Nye, right? The- Bill, No, Bill Maher, the comedian. Oh, you're he, not talking he he about
1: the big... Uh... Yeah, the debate. Yeah.
0: That's interesting because that debate was interesting because Ken Ham kind of knows rhetorical tricks that somebody like oh yeah, Bill Nye doesn't know. And so it's, it's kind of just like sleight of hand. I thought, wow, this is like, he's kind of winning a lot of debating points through kind of intellectual sleight of hand because... Nye's not a philosopher. So he doesn't, you know, he's kind of, he, he doesn't see these telegraph moves coming. That's really interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> again, excuse me, this, this kind of illustrates kind of where we're at, um, Creation gets challenged by evolution. We get into a big antagonism. Um, and, and this is what evangelicals always do. Evangelical fundamentalists say, ah, we should have listened to science. Uh, we had this reaction against it. Now we're going to totally buy into it. And do you think the antagonism is
0: why these conservative publishing housing always publishing has always, always published these four views books? And then they'll publish the same four views books like five years later with four different people arguing because the anxiety is like, wait, what's the right view? I got to get the book and get the right view. And you can always make money on that, right? Because there's always anxiety about what the right
1: oh, view I, is. Oh, I 100%. That's a brilliant
0: observation. I love it. So you could just keep publishing those books over and over and over on the same, on the same issues with just new authors.
1: Right. And, 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 and
0: people will buy the same book they bought before.
1: So and in, in the fantasy, in the, word, in, in the worlds of ideology, the fantasy is someday I will, will arrive at the correct answer. And everything will be okay, but I have to keep working like heck until I get there. And then, and, and then the worry is, uh, I'm not going to get the right answer until it's too late. And, uh, we will be there in the new heavens and the new earth. And we're still arguing over the four points on what eschatology is right. What's the best and worst
0: book you've picked up in the past year? Oh,
1: dude. I'm terrible at this because one of I, your
0: favorite, what, favorite recent book. And then one book you think, ugh. Just, like, seeing it makes you want to, like, just have a visceral
1: reaction. Um, um, I read this book b- by a transitioning woman whose first name is Vivek. I can't remember her last name. I've, I was in a bookstore in, in uh, uh, Pasadena. I was teaching at Fuller. Saw this book. It was highlighted. Why I Fear Men. Wow. You open up the pages. And you see all of the struggles and the pains of an oppressive patriarchal world of the male gaze. And you understand why it's not enough to affirm or not affirm this transitioning woman or the uh, kind of whatever she transgender label she represents We must enter in. You're saying her pain is more complex than the the political label game. Uh, Everybody's pain is more complex. And we must enter in and listen and unwind and let the forgiveness, reconciliation, and renewal work of Jesus Christ do his work in the world. Um, Don't you think, though, that
0: people's inability to do that? I often think on a personal level, if somebody's got a real deep pain, some deep personal struggle and people want to solve the problem. It's it, rather than just kind of dwell with them in it. It's because the, the the problem is making the listener anxious. So, so they can't focus on the person's pain empathetically because just the struggle makes them anxious. And so they kind of try to fix the, you know, they, they can't, they just kind of got kind of, to here do this or pray or take this here. Here's the solution. I, I, I wonder like if there's a similar kind of dynamic on cultural, political things, where just like the complexity makes us anxious and so you look for a
1: quick framing thing because it's just that it's just anxious okay i don't know if i Here's what here's what I see is happening. Uh, evangelicals, Christians, Protestant mainlines, all of us Christians have a framework that we develop that works for us. And uh, since we're often in a cocoon of people just like us, it never gets challenged. And it's working just fine. And we build our whole what uh, Judith Butler, Foucault, others called subjectivity identity around it. And everything's working great. And now I meet someone. Who is calling it into? Who's challenging it to the core, and um, that is incredibly uh, dis—it's disruptive to who I am and my sense of identity, and I don't care who you are, you're going to kind of respond with a defensiveness and a unwillingness to engage the person on their terms. But Jesus always is the one who kind of makes space, who will not participate in the antagonism on the world's terms, and just makes space to be present. To the person, you know, John chapter eight is my favorite example of this. I use it in the book. I use it everywhere I go. You know, it's, it's so great. You know, the adulteress is put, the Pharisees put the adulteress, uh, before them. It says in John chapter eight, they make her into an object, an enemy. And then they say to Jesus something like, Hey, the law says stoner. Are you with us? Or are you against us? Or no, they say, are you with the law? Or are you against the law? You know, the antagonism breaks out. The law has been ideologized into a banner. It doesn't mean anything anymore as to what it originally meant. And Jesus refuses to enter into it on their terms, on the world's terms. That's what I think we got to do when we hit this defensive uh, moment in our lives. Can we just chill out, use tactics to distract? I think Jesus wrote in the sand or something and not... Let not give into the temptation to enter into the antagonism and destroy people's lives. Jesus wants to work there in that conflict. Conflict is good. It's okay. You will learn. We will learn. Everybody will learn if we can just make space for Jesus to be present in the midst. Well, I'll tell you, your book is a great place to
0: deconstruct kind of the frames that, that, you know, stand in the way of us kind of doing that. I think so. Thanks for, writing it and thanks for talking with me about it my friend dude
1: i had a really good time uh talking to you today and uh sorry to miss you in philadelphia where we could okay there'll be next where we could have had a brew but it was really busy they were it had they were they were booking me up to the max so anyways uh next time yeah next time over you my friend
0: Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks today for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, The Church of Us Versus Them. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.